the Sports Career Podcast, episode 303, how to build trust with clients in the sports legal industry. Hello, Sports Achiever, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular field in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in sports law. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests, and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Stefania Genesis. Stefania is an international sports lawyer and director and co-founder of Levida Sport, which specialises in legal services on disputes, deals, management and strategic advice within the sports industry from a legal perspective. For that reason, it's such a privilege to have Stefania as a special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, Stefania will share her sports career journey and explain to you how to build trust with clients in the sports legal industry. Steph, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Ed, thank you so much for inviting me on here. I'm very excited um, to be taking part in this today. My career in sports law, I would say actually I took a somewhat convoluted route into law. Um, when I graduated, I, I, did my, I did my undergraduate in languages. Then I straight away did a conversion into law because I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. But I've been somewhat of an opportunist. So um, when a job came up on the graduate path at Bloomberg, I applied and I spent about three and a half years in Bloomberg covering international banks in London and Dubai. And then I went out to New York and I worked for AIG in business development for a year and a half which was an amazing experience but knowing that I wanted to be a lawyer I decided not to stay on come back to the UK do my LPC and and get on with it and I got a training contract at Mishcon where I spent in the end a decade which was a yeah an incredible 10 years and it was a while I was at Mishcon that I got into the sports space. And I would say to you, Ed, I'd love to say it's because I had always intended to go into sport, but I actually found my way into sport through my languages. So I speak Spanish and Italian fluently. And um, right from when I was a trainee, whether I was doing a real estate seat, a fraud seat, I was getting constantly pulled into sports matters. Steph, we need you to help with this Italian owner of a football club or whatnot. And I found that I was doing progressively more and more sports. So while Whilst I qualified um, originally into intellectual property, within a few months, I moved full time into the sports team. I want to tap into that because that's going to be my next question. Like, And just for people who are listening with non-sport degree backgrounds, you've mentioned it already, like doing that language degree, like looking back, how vital is that now even more because of those transferable skills? I know it's state the obvious, but then you tap into other cultures in sport, how things are done through the culture of a football club in that language. Just looking back, how has that really supported you, the language side of your skill set? You know what, Ed, 
it's been fundamental, I would say, because sport is such an international sector. It's such a global area in which to work. And I think the cultural nuances are so key, having that understanding. My mother's from Colombia, so I've worked with a few of the South Americans in the Premier League, and not only just them, but their families. And that ability to communicate in their mother tongue is absolutely key to put them at ease, make sure that they really understand, particularly when it comes to legal or even commercial matters that they wouldn't, they don't feel um, as familiar with the terminology. So if you can break it down for them um, in a way that's digestible and more than anything in their own language, it's, it's fundamental and a key aspect when it comes to building trust. Yeah, we're going to talk about the trust bit. I want to now talk, talk about culture because you said you've done some work in Dubai, New York, London, Italy, like totally different cultures, different upbringings, not just from a sports standpoint, but just in general, reflecting how have you built your knowledge of, okay, this is things how things are done in Dubai. This is how things are in America. Do, do you get that hindsight now better because you've been in those environments now to be better in being a sports lawyer too? Ed, do you know what? The ability to navigate those different jurisdictions, also recognising your own limitations. So um, whilst, you know, obviously you build your confidence, your knowledge, working in different um, jurisdictions, tapping into a local lawyer or contacts on the ground is really, really key. Um, my business partner, Liz Ellen, she's half Chinese and she does a lot in the Far East. And, you know, and, and it's one of those areas where you really do need to understand the culture in order to succeed and to do well and to represent your client's best interest. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that it's not only just the, you know, in terms of geographical regions but in sport for example when you'll go before the court of arbitration for sport in Lausanne it's very different to being at the high court in London for example you know in terms of even what counsel you would instruct you know the way that they present their submissions and evidence the cross-examination so yeah I think that with sport being so global and understanding not only geographically of the way that things operate, but having um, your contacts on the ground and an understanding of how their own internal systems work is key. And then finally, before we get to a common thread of interest of boxing, before we talk about sports law, I just want to touch on your business experience. Like, again, you've gone into the business world, like with Bloomberg, reflecting from that experience, how has it been, helped you to be a lawyer too? Because I want the listeners to learn it's not step one degree, step two master, step three sports law, you've just proven you can go different directions. And I just want to reflect on the business side now of how those experience helped you now in regards to the work you're doing in the sports industry. Ed, when I have young aspiring sports lawyers that I speak to and, and they think that there's only one path in, I can categorically say that the best thing I, I did, not to say that it was all intentional because it was more I was driven by opportunity, was having had a different background. So when I went to those training contract interviews, I was much more well-rounded. I was a bit more mature. I had the commercial experience. I mean, when I when I graduated and, and started working at Bloomberg, I was like 21, 22, traveling to Dubai, meeting CEOs, heads of desks. So when it came to doing my training contract, I wasn't fearful of writing an email or picking up the phone because I'd already been in that environment. And I think it's so key. And also because it makes you think not just from a strictly legal standpoint, but from a much 
broader commercial perspective, which let's face it, sports is, it is a business. And so it's not just legal advice, but general commercial advice and guidance and strategy that you're offering. I want to touch on to two words now. You said confidence already, which is key. And I'm intrigued when you were that 21 slash 22 year old and also your communication skills, which you highlighted there. Just for people just to go, right, we've gone big picture. Let's go small picture when you're 21, 22. Like, how did you navigate your own self-belief early on just to get the ball rolling? Because it's easy looking back of our journey, but going forward is always the tricky part for people starting out in the sports industry, not just in sports law. On those two words, confidence and communication. Okay, so for confidence, I think particularly when you're starting out is preparation. Preparation is key. You know, people know when you're blagging it or when you're trying to blag. I mean, don't get me wrong. As you become more experienced, you might not know the nitty gritty, but you have enough that you can guide yourself through a meeting. But I think particularly in the early days, prepare for meetings, understand the landscape, keep abreast of what's going on in the industry or, you know, any latest developments in terms of, you know, commercial deals or sponsorship deals or or transfer news, et cetera, depending obviously on your area of interest. But I think that preparation is absolutely fundamental to build confidence. Um, In terms of communication, if I were to choose one skill that I think is the most essential for a successful career, not only as a lawyer, but maybe specifically as a sports lawyer, I would say communication, because it is such a relationship driven area. Um, Your people skills are so fundamental. And with communication, I would say it requires emotional intelligence, a sense of collaboration, um, trust and influence. And I think keeping your clients updated, even if it's just touching base so that they know that you're you're working on it that you're you know that things are going on in the background that they you know that it's all in hand that's key so just where you are now with the communication with the clients you work with do you have like a weekly update for your clients because with mine I made sure every two weeks I just gave them a little email going this is what I'm up to just want you to know and it sounds so basic but it's amazing it just keeps them mindful what I'm doing so they don't have to question going, is Ed doing that task or not? It just eliminates that doubt. I'm just curious if you had some sort of system like that. Yeah, to be honest with you, Ed, I think that in, you know, with our our work at Levida, um, it's very case specific. So there are some clients that you would touch base with on a regular basis just to update them. But I'm very much, you know, if something happens, if there's a development, I tend to update once I processed it pretty much straight away so that they know exactly what's going on. And I think with the way things are now, Ed, you know, a lot of players, they, you know, you communicate via WhatsApp um, and and WhatsApp. So it's almost like, you know, you always are mindful because ultimately you are writing down whether that is, you know, an update, et cetera, but that's how they want to communicate. They want that access to you as a lawyer. They don't want it to be strictly by, you know, email or, or, you know, a pre-arranged call. They want to be able to just pick up the phone or say, Steph, this is the latest that's happened. What do you think I should do? And I think it's that being able to be, you know, it's tough because, you know, we talk about work-life balance, but it is the availability is absolutely key in this area. You've You've got to know how to manage your time. I was going to say that with the Oster time and our energy levels, how do you prioritize? Like, how do you switch off? Because I always say this on the podcast, 
it's all great the fun side of the sports industry but this machine keeps going on day in day out but we're not machines we've got to rest so how do you find that balance of the time management and your energy levels too ed i've got to say that i feel like i'm in a very blessed position now that I've left a big corporate because whilst you know at La Vida it's been you know that's part of the whole ethos what we're about you know so just very briefly I know that you'll probably touch upon this afterwards but the name La Vida is an amalgamation of my business partner's daughter's name and my niece's name so live and vida um, and vida in Spanish means life so it's literally live life so when we left our previous firm we were very much um, motivated by this desire to create a really sort of holistic business that was geared towards you know being there for our clients so that they can have the most you know the the best quality of life because ultimately disputes and legal matters bring stress so if you can alleviate that in some way then you know you're you know that's part of the service that you're offering and then from a personal perspective not to be you know not to be shackled by billable hours to have the freedom to to advise in a much more um value-based way and and for me that's been fundamental and I would say that look I work whenever I have to work. So whether that's late on a Friday night, on a Sunday or whatever, but if I need to go and pick up my niece on a Tuesday morning or take her to school, or if I need to go and, you know, do something personal during the week, then I have that ability to do that. I exercise probably five times a week. That's part of my non-negotiable. Um, you know, that's my, my outlet. And I feel like being able to work in this way means that I can manage and balance my time and preserve my energy and just, you know, work in a way that suits me personally, but also means I'm available for my clients. I know this is such a buzzword, but I'm glad you brought it that sort of non-negotiable. For me, it's running. And like I, I did one last night and it was about half eight turning nine. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I may need a headlamp because it's getting dark in the UK. But <laughs> I, I'm just, this word non-negotiable is so important because I love to hear your thoughts, but the the work I'm doing now with different projects, I have those hot periods where a lot of juggling and then I have those sort of cooler periods where I can reflect a little bit, but also manage things better. It's sort of like hot and cold effect. And you're trying to find that middle wall, like amber colour, but I'm just intrigued. I want the listeners to understand this is, in my experience, how the industry works. But of like, And I, I see you nodding your head. Could you just, from your experience, just elaborate yeah. that? Because I, it's not taught this till you experience it. That's the point. <laughs> Um, definitely a peaks and troughs system. So sometimes mm -hmm. you're absolutely inundated. And don't get me wrong, when I say non-negotiable, perhaps in those periods, sometimes, you know, your head doesn't really have much capacity to take on, you know, or to, to juggle many different things. So you prioritise, you know that you're working to a deadline, you know that you've got certain things that need to get done. So that is your absolute priority. And then you're going to go through times that are sl slightly more downtime. The reality is that even the downtime you, you, you aim to use it productively, you aim to use it for building knowledge, uh, you know, for business development, for, you know, attending conferences. So, but it's much more at a leisurely rate rather than the high intensity that a lot of these legal matters run at. Look, I hope people are taking notes and Steph, cheers for sharing that because I think this is vital. I want to pivot the conversation because we've got such a connection. I'm so intrigued how you're working in the boxing industry so little story about me I did a thesis I, I'm so glad I went my gut um it was all about how to motivate well, why boxers get in the ring what motivates them and I was lucky enough to do it at the Brendan Ingle gym watch Kel Brook train watch Nicola Adams train which is really cool but I didn't realize and I wanted you to share your experience how 
small world the boxing industry is like from my reflecting it's nearly 10 years old this thesis i done it taught me about being mindful of the environment of sports you have no idea in and listening more than talking and when i learned from brendan ingle was not around he just taught me like how the boxing industry runs and i would say it's very closed door until you build those relationships which are key so i'd just love to hear how you got into the boxing industry and why you enjoy working in it now as well Ed, I couldn't agree more with your description of the kind of industry it is. It is quite a closed industry. A lot of people know each other. Um, and I would say that also because of the different communities that are involved in boxing, you have to be very mindful of the way that you operate. So I would say that I've kind of been involved in boxing both at the amateur level and at the professional level for England Boxing and um, sitting on their subcommittee advising the board on legal HR and compliance and then in boxing working for Matchroom as well as some individual fighters over the years. Um, I've always been fascinated by boxing. I mean I think that it's like no other sport in terms of what's actually at stake. So when you go and watch live sport, I don't think anything quite compares to being ringside when there is like a hotly contested bout and the energy and the, the, the way that the air just feels charged is like nothing else. And it's because you obviously it is an inherently dangerous sport, you know, um, in terms of the working in this area, I've got to say that, um, I actually did a three month stint internally within England boxing, um, almost like a, a retainer. And that was a really fascinating and eye opening time because as a governing body, the challenges they face are really, really quite complex. And um, without going into the nitty gritty, it really opened my eyes to what is involved in the, the management and the governance side of a fight sport specifically. Um, and then I would just say on the professional side, obviously, when you've got an organization, a company like Matchroom, the types of matters that you get involved in are so far reaching from reputational to, you know, even on the intellectual property side, commercial. So it's very broad ranging. I would say that obviously now Matchroom have their in-house lawyers, so we work very closely with them. Um, but no, I mean, nothing but admiration for what they feel, essentially a family business that's grown into a sports empire. I mean, Eddie, start, I'm sorry, Barry started this back in the, I think it was in the in the 70s and he was managing a few snooker players. Almost like, yeah. Then like the a, and then <laughs> and now you know Eddie he he has I would say catapulted it to the next level you know even culminating with that enormous you know billion dollar zone deal um and yeah it's an it's a very very exciting time in boxing um whilst I can't go into the particulars I would say that one of my highlights um was actually a case I did on a pro bono basis for a boxer and um, this is completely unrelated to Matchroom, but the boxer had had their license um, suspended by the British Boxing Board of Control. It was on, on the basis of a medical issue. At the time that the license was suspended, he was undefeated. So you can imagine. And this is the fact, Ed, that these boxers, they live and breathe boxing. It's almost like their identity is so tied to what they do. They, you can't, they can almost 
not see a, a future without boxing. Um, and obviously, you know, following a you know due process, I was able to 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 challenge that decision and manage to get the license reinstated. And I think that it was just such a I the satisfaction that I felt for this boxer was was immense and a really quite I think poignant moment for me. Can we just touch a little bit? I'll share my experiences and then you can ask, then I ask questions. When I did my thesis, I, I, I always share this story because the one thing I loved about the Brendan Ingle gym, it doesn't matter who you are. So the big name, the two big names were Kid Galahad and then you had Kel Brook. Yeah. Then you had all the younger boxers. Like, Steph, this is the image I'll never forget. I had my Durham polo on, so they know who I was. They were prepped, even all the boxers that was coming the week before, again, building that trust. And I had this... Um, the Brendan Ingle gym have got these sort of painted lines which are on the on the floor of the gym which are painted it they can't be copied in any other gym and I had this eight-year-old do the sort of the footwork and then Kel Brook next to him and I sat there and just watched I went wow like boxing's one sport where you see the community side it does it there's no egos it's doing the work in the gym and you would never see that on a football pitch like at the time you wouldn't have Wayne Rooney and an academy player do the same drill but of course Kel was a lot more um you know, a lot more better with his technique of his footwork. But I just want to tap onto because of people, when they think of boxing, they think of, let's say, my time, the George Groves frotch fight in Wembley, the big sellouts, where they forget about the grassroots side of what I've just explained just now. So with your experience of the um, boxing with England, where it's more the governance and you've got the professional experience, how has that supported you as a professional in the boxing industry? Because you can see both sides of the uh, perspective of boxing if that makes sense absolutely and I think that you know that being involved at the amateur level you actually see the the journey that a lot of these fighters go through you know not all, all of them you know many I mean, you're supposed to have a good you know amateur record but you know especially the beginning the early days it is so incredibly tough you know you're expected also to try and sell tickets so it's not just the fact you know the small hall boxing you know you want you you have to get out there and really kind of sell yourself and a lot of these boxers you know let's face it they want to be in the gym they want to be training they don't want to be out there necessarily promoting themselves and that's why even we see now I guess in some ways with social media it's become so key to a lot of these fighters commercial success success and the whole hype that's built around the fights but I would say at the amateur level the you know what's taught what it what it's really shown me is just the impact that boxing has in the community and a lot of people will only focus in on the danger aspect but what it does for communities particularly underprivileged communities is I feel far far outweighs any of the of the downsides to boxing the discipline the community um you know the fact that these these guys they're training every single day a lot of them you know I think it's it requires a level of discipline like you know potentially like no other sport yeah I, we'll tap in a little bit because I can I'm literally smiling because I remember the first day I remember Brennan you'll show me the, the flat where um, Prince Asim was living. And he said, do you know what? I just got him off the street because he was having a fight in the area. And he's one of the greatest of all times. And the thing I, I share this is I totally agree. And I, I said this to um, after I gave my thesis and learned having cups of tea with Brendan. He is not just helping children. He even had, I always remember, uh, two paramedics with their gear just jumped their stuff, got the boxing team, got involved. We're not talking, everybody thinks of like the grassroots with kids and helping, but actually they're helping 
people in the community who have stressful jobs too. And I always share, I know he's not around, but he has helped thousands of people that aren't being shared on social media than just his uh, three to four well title, like uh, Johnny Nelson, for example, all the big names. We always think about that. We don't see the impact of kids having other walks of life. And um, same with Owen Bolcher in, in women's boxing as well, when I've learned from him. But last thing on the boxing, because this side, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I want people to understand this when they're in the room. When you were working with Matrim and you got, you're in the presence of Eddie and Barry, like, what do you learn from those experiences and and how do they learn from you because I think you can just learn so much when you're in the room like body language and how things are done I'm just curious yeah I mean to say that particularly like you know in some ways probably I've had more contact with with Barry and he's such an impressive person because he brings obviously so much experience and he comes from you know uh, an underprivileged background himself and has built something in a way that can only be admired and what I really love about Barry as well is that whilst he is you know a purist when it comes to boxing he does also appreciate that there is now this whole new wave you know of of boxing bouts being organized between you know social media stars youtubers and that you know as much as whether you are for or against it it's i i think definitely here to stay and so with you know with with barry and 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 with eddie they've they've you know they've tapped into that and they accept that that is potentially part of of the future of the business i think that you know um it was ksi and logan paul too that um Eddie promoted um, and at the pay-per-view on that. I know I don't think that the figures were released, but I think it was the highest numbers for 2019, which included the AJ Andy Ruiz fight. So it's pretty significant. But no, they are both, you know, pretty incredible um individuals and the and the business just speaks for itself what I absolutely love as a as a woman in in sport is the fact that I remember a few years ago that it was only Katie Taylor that was in there in the in their um roster and now they've got 18 I think it's around 18 fighters of the 97 which is nearly 20 percent and I've got to say that as you know I've been to see you know not a great deal of women's football but I would say that when I watch the the women's fights I actually I don't think there's as much I don't think there's a real disparity or as much of a disparity with the the um the the male fight game so I just think to myself it's so enjoyable to see and there are some really really exciting fighters coming through you know even this upcoming fight between Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall and then um I saw Sh- Shannon Ryan you know there's Chantel Cameron there's so many Caroline Dubois Sharon Courtney there's so many that are, are exciting you know Ramla Ali that are exciting prospects to keep our our on so no I feel like boxing is in a truly exciting phase and there are some really phenomenal British fighters that are that are coming up but you know boxing is one of those things that it's just uh it, it's a phenomenal sport and I think there's so much to cover and so much to say I think what I've loved and going because I've done my I always like learning from other professionals with Barry I always remember going at the end of the day I'm still an accountant which means he always does his numbers so I haven't yeah. been in the room with him but he always backs everything with numbers what I love about Eddie this is more from a promotional side is it's all about role models for him equality like for me what's lovely is seeing headline fights where talk about women's boxing they are the headline like when Katie Taylor it's great that she's on the poster instead of like in the corner it's stuff like that where it's changing the narrative of a sport from a promotional standpoint which this is where 
I think sport is brilliant moving forward because it reflects society, hopefully afterwards, um, with how we look at things. But moving on, we only talked about the main podcast topic, but it, I think it's so intertwined with all our conversations. Could we just touch on, particularly sports lawyers, but actually sport professionals in general, this important aspect of trust with clients, being specific on that? Like, we've touched on it already, but reflecting now why is it so important to build those relationships like those whatsapp messages instantly like reflecting now how has that supported your career with that trust element honestly ed i think that there is you know as i as i mentioned earlier i think in the sports space you know you it's so human relationships that emotional connection is so fundamental and i think because you get involved with a lot of these um these athletes or you know with with management at clubs sometimes when they're going through quite stressful situations you know liz and i um we're both trained litigators and so we we do a lot of dispute based work and i think disputes are just inherently stressful no matter what you know we've seen it when it's affected us personally how you know how difficult it can be and so the ability to trust the person that's fighting that battle for you um, is is absolutely fundamental. And I think because also you're sharing at times very, very um, sensitive information. You know a lot about that individual, about them, about their families, about what makes them tick, about their business. So I think that the, the trust aspect is so key. And the communication part of that is a big element. They need to, in some ways, get to know you so that they can then trust mm-hmm. you. Because that was the same even my thesis. Just a little fun story with the boxes again. Boxes again, I gave them all colognes, like um, to to say thank you. But it elevated the trust. It wasn't meant to be an incentive, but when you're dealing with athletes, where a lot of the times they use for deals and businesses, we forget they're human beings. And um, just again elevating that trust. How important is also integrity? Because I bet as a sports lawyer, it's hard to say the hard conversations where. They may not like to hear it, but from your role, it needs to be said, sort of getting rid of the elephant from the room sort of metaphor. I just want to highlight that to lawyers from a trust element of like being integral with what you need to say, even if it's hard to say, that makes sense. Absolutely. And that's definitely part of the job, Ed. And you wouldn't be doing your job properly if you're just the client what they want to hear, because often it's not. Sometimes, you know, you're trying to solicit from them specific information that is actually going to be quite key for the case, whether that's going to be helpful or not. You need to know it. As their lawyer, you need to know it because you need to be able to preempt what might come. And if that information is kept from you later on, it becomes more of like, you know, damage control rather than risk management. And I think that's actually quite fundamental. And that's where it's key that they need to be able to trust you so that they can feel able to disclose the information that you know might potentially be difficult um, or complicated for them from a case perspective further along the line yeah no I was going to say with that risk management versus something escalating even more how do you work with your clients with social media so they're mindful that they don't post something that can escalate because that side of managing with clients I think social media it can be a great tool or it can be a an enemy if it's not used right if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think that, you know, depending on the level of the player, they sometimes have somebody obviously who manages their socials, where they manage their socials themselves. You know, if something doesn't immediately feel 100% right, it's better not to post is always the, the general message. You know, ultimately, that is your, you know, your view being expressed 
and being out there forevermore. So always we advise to proceed with caution and also to dissuade, you know, clients from posting anything, particularly if it's got to do with a, a particular case, because, you know, all that kind of information can then be used against you. It's crazy how, you know, even, for example, let's even take WhatsApp. We've been involved in, for example, Rule K arbitrations, which are um, through the FA. That's an arbitral system here. And you're having to disclose entire WhatsApp conversations, you know, and there's screen grabs from social media. So you, you always have to be very, you've got to be cognizant that that can be used against you. So even those, you know, chats, what you say, what you put in those chats can be one day read out in a tribunal. Finally, just on the sports lawyer, like, is there a difference when representing different clients from different sports? Let's say, keep it simple, football or boxing. I know the skills are probably the same, but is there a difference out of interest? You know, I think the industries are obviously very different. Um, and also the the participants mm-hmm. within those industries. You know, sometimes if you're dealing with like C-suite executives in clubs, then obviously, you know, their the level of sophistication in terms of their understanding will be at a particular level. And you're dealing with very much the, you know, you're feeling that you're sort of on par in terms of your communication. You just have to be very, very conscious that depending on who you're dealing with, that you ensure that your advice is communicated in a way that is digestible because that's the one fundamental thing is that you know you don't want your client to leave that room or to get off that phone and really not have understood what it is that you're saying um i think that yes each sport has you know its own nuances i've worked with a you know within tennis with the tennis integrity unit and they have their own way of doing things you know so it's really really ex-police officers is is a large part of their of their team completely different also with the with the the players that you're dealing with um a lot of them come from backgrounds where if you don't have um parents that are able to fund your tennis career it's very difficult to even be a professional tennis player um you know and i would say that each sport obviously has its own you know its own particularities but i think that more than anything it's actually who you're dealing with within that sport and how you tailor your advice to ensure that they come away having understood it i'm gonna say a really hard question now how do you stay up to date with the different regulations on different sports because i'm learning in sports law oh my goodness when regulate regulations change it's what can change how things are done so may i ask how you manage that through different clients in different sports and yeah i'm just curious you know what ed i've got to say that's probably one of the hardest elements of of this industry is the fact that you know you're dealing with different sports different regulatory structures different rules and regulations um and and you you have to keep abreast my key aspect i think because we do so much work in football is is really trying to keep abreast of changes to the you know the rstp so fifa's regulations on the transfer and status of players i think that's probably one of the key aspects so I always you know when there is an update um, I look at for example the commentary that FIFA releases and any of the relevant cases around those particular changes I also try to keep abreast of any of the changes that might be happening for example with the FIFA clearinghouse and the changes to the agents regulations key aspects that are kind of key and well known that we know are changing can you keep on top of the rules and regulations in every sport at all time I think that's very difficult Um, on a case-by-case basis you always have to go back to the rules anyway 
So if there are changes in it, you know, inevitably you will end up having a look at those rules and familiarising yourself once more. I hope people are taking notes. And thank you so much, Steph, for that, because I think that's what I've learned from other lawyers. And just finally, could you just give a little snapshot? I know you've mentioned your business already and your business partner, but could you just share what you do and just for the audience just to, yeah, learn a little bit more. 2020, we we launched La Vida um, and Liz had been at Mishcon for 15 years and I had been there for 10. And to be honest with you, we wanted just to have kind of like a one-stop shop for sports for athletes, for clubs and other sports businesses to kind of provide a really holistic legal support as well as management of international sporting projects. Um, To be honest with you, we just craved something different. We are a consultancy business and a legal concierge. So we can, if it's an area of law that we can't directly uh, advise or assist with, we have like a very, very close network of professionals, both in the UK and internationally that we work with so that we provide a very... um, bespoke service um and you know we're not we're not constrained by the like a corporate environment so that's one aspect that I think has really helped on the building of trust because whereas before everything you you know there's very much an emphasis on every phone call that's however many units of time that you're billing back to the client your client should be able to pick up the phone and say do you know what Steph I'm thinking of you know I want to I want to work with minors in football what do I need to do and they need to know that they can have that conversation without immediately being billed for that and I think that that is really quite fundamental so yeah um Levida is very much our you know our, our baby and it's an exciting time we're looking forward to to the future and what the next few years will hold I can't wait to hear more but out of interest Steph like reflecting now what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now do you know what looking back I would say Ed every single day in sport is different and that is something that you just, I think, is is difficult to explain. You know, people always say, you know, oh, you're a lawyer as if it's uh, the same thing as being an, a, a corporate lawyer, you know. And I think that, let's say, acting for Amex or a big, uh, a big bank is very different from what we do. You know, this is a very people and very relationship-driven area. And I would say every single day is different, you know, whether you're dealing with match-fixing in tennis or you're dealing with a, you know, a player who hasn't been paid in football or you're dealing with you know a complaint that's come in that can potentially have an issue affect a client's reputation whatever that is and I feel that you know you never get bored and and in terms of what I love most about the job that is it and don't get me wrong because of that it keeps you on your toes because it's you know it's very difficult to be all over every aspect and I think you have to come to terms with that but you know it it just means that you have to be a much more well-rounded practitioner. I think the key word's adaptable because you're spot on. I know it's cliche that every day is different in the sports industry and it really is, but it's being adaptable in the work you do specifically with the niche or being a sports lawyer. What a wonderful conversation. And I always like to finish with an inspirational one. Now, Steph, you've provided big picture, small picture, being a sports lawyer. We've talked about boxing. We've talked about a lot, but I want to just sort of go back to the basics just for the listeners. Considering that your lecturer is day two, what would be the first sort of three steps to the listeners starting their sports career journey, not just in boxing, but just to get the ball rolling so then they can experience some of the experiences you've had now. But sometimes we get a bit too overwhelmed with the information. So what would be your three top tips or steps for those listeners right now who are just starting their sports legal journey? Yeah, so, Ed, you know, I feel like I've, I guess my 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 tips would 
probably come from advice that I've received over the years. Um, one partner, when I was tra- was a trainee, said to me, be the best lawyer you can be. That's first and foremost. So a lot of people that want to get into sports law say, I want to be a sports lawyer. I want to be a sports lawyer. No, do you want to be a lawyer? And then think about, you know, specializing or building your expertise in that particular area. But first and foremost, be the best lawyer you can be. Because no matter what sector you then apply that to, you'll be, you know, you'll you'll be able to serve your clients in the way that is required. Um, and then I will take one of the top tips from my from my business partner Liz, um, and the way that she, you know, she was absolutely remarkable in the sense that she built a sports practice at the, our former firm from nothing, and she always says, "Meet someone new every week." And I think that's really quite key in terms of network because it is a, a network driven business. And I would say the third tip, I'm stealing this one from my husband. He's he's actually a television director, but it applies to our industry too, which is say yes and then work it out. So whether you get invited to an event, you get invited to, to do a work experience, or you know, you'll get, you know, you even get asked to assist with something say yes and then work it out and you'll build experience in that way too i actually love the last two but all three are brilliant but the last one in particular i couldn't agree more like you sort of like figure it out later just say yes and figure out the details later <laughs> exactly steph how can people interact with you online like where are the best places to go for the listeners so i would say you know in terms of interacting online i'm on linkedin but also um on instagram mainly and that's at Sports Law Steph and at Levida Sport. And we we communicate a lot via our, our Instagram pages. That's how we got connected. So just to give the proof of the exactly. proof of the pudding, everybody. Um exactly. to all the listeners listening, all those links will be on the website with regards to this podcast chat. Steph, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Ed, thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. All the best. What a fabulous podcast chat with Steph. And it's these sort of conversations that light me up because I've interviewed many sports lawyers and all of them have a different journey with regards to how they've become an expert in their field. And there's so much I just want to evaluate from this conversation because I think it's so relatable to a lot of people who different degree. So number one, Uh, If you are doing languages, I hope you can see how it's applicable. Yes, that means you've got to study to be a sports lawyer, but I hope you can learn that it's such a great asset to have, to have different languages under your hat. So when you work in those environments abroad, you can add value because like Steph says, it just builds that trust of understanding. And number two, the one thing I just want to highlight is the importance what Steph said in focusing on being a great lawyer first. That is the fundamental. I think when we hear the sport bit, we get really excited or sports lawyers get really excited um, because of the sport element. But actually, it all comes down to being a fantastic lawyer in that area of expertise. And then finally, which is something that you only learn through experience, which I have now with regards to working with athletes in particular, That trust only comes through time and through experience, through what you do and how you support them in the area that you're supporting them in, if that makes sense. So I think that's really important with regards to today's podcast topic. It is obvious that trust is an important element in the sports industry, but that only comes when you put yourself in that room 
and really have real empathy in how you want to support that individual in a sporting environment. Like that's how I look at it. When I work with athletes, these are actually people who are already finished their sport. I just always look at them as the human being and how can I add value to them in their current projects and how I can help solve problems for them. That's the mindset I have. But with regards to Steph, where it's career related, like I really enjoyed our boxing conversation, but she's so spot on in this point. A lot of boxers, they eat and breathe boxing with us, the training, because everything's on the line. And just to put things in perspective, they could have a winning streak, let's say of six wins in a row, and then they're getting on the journey of a title fight or a big bout, which has a big money purse. One loss, they're back right from the beginning. It's one of those individual sports where it's a very up and down um, type of sport of what it is. It's not like a team sport like football. You can have one bad game um, and then you've got next week to overcome it uh, to get three points on the board. No, boxing, it's sort of that sort of live or die mentality in regards to a career perspective of how you perform. And without a doubt, the more wins you get over time, the bigger the pressure, but the bigger the rewards. That's how the sport is built. And that's something I learned through my thesis 10 years ago. So I really enjoyed that side. But going back to the sports career tips right at the end that Steph shared, the one I want to highlight again is the last one. Like say yes and figure out the details later. It's something I've also lived by. As long as it relates to your interests, relates to your goals, relates to like moving that needle forward with regards to your development, say yes and figure the details later. So on that note, I'm really curious of what was your biggest takeaway. Let us know both on Instagram at edbowers101, your biggest takeaway, and put it into action today and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Steph said, to build trust with athletes or clubs or clients in the sports industry, it all comes down to human relationships and emotional connections. That is the fundamentals of building trust in the sports industry.